Hello and welcome to The Pain Cave. I'm your host, Jay Friedman, and I am very excited to be joined today by a legendary figure in the sport of ultra running. He is an elite ultra marathoner. He is a physical therapist and coach who performs online coaching and stride analysis at his website, Yuhan Performance, and a very accomplished ultra runner with podium and top 10 finishes at various well-known trail ultras across the country, including Lake Sonoma, Bandera, and of course the Western States 100 run. I'm very pleased to welcome Olive Oil, Joe Yuhan. Joe, welcome to the Pain Cave. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Joe, before we even get started, I, I do need to ask about the nickname Olive Oil Joe, which I, I believe I heard years ago. What What is that about? Um, if your listeners go to Craig Thornley's um, blog, which I believe is called Conduct the Juices, he has a story about that. Basically, it goes back to the 2011, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the race, what was it? Um, American River 50, I'm sorry. It was a chilly day, and I'm from Wisconsin, and when it's cold out, we, when we ran college cross-country, we would rub olive oil on our arms and legs. Oh, I definitely did that in college cross as well. Where are you from? Uh, I, I grew up in upstate New York, or I grew up in the suburbs of the city. Uh, <laughs> so, and yeah, uh, so. yeah I, ran, I ran at Cornell. I, I vividly remember doing that at Penn State one year, just slathering uh, olive oil all over ourselves on like a you know 35 degree rainy day. Definitely a Midwest backy sort of thing, but here I was in um, in sunny California, and it was cold. It was thirty two degrees or so at the start, and I bought a bottle of olive oil and was slathering it on, probably unnecessarily, as it got to probably seventy five. <laughs> <laughs> and so the name, the nickname stuck, and um, there's there's some fun stuff, that, other things to check out. That is awesome. That is great. So, Joe, let's talk a little bit about you before we get into the meat of the episode, which is going to revolve around the Western States 100, which is a race that I know you feel uh, very strongly about, as do I. And we're going to talk a little bit or a good bit today about the Western States 100 lottery and kind of what you and I think a lot of other people see as the kind of underlying problem that the lottery is running into and the possible solutions to that. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about your background as a physical therapist and how you got into physical therapy and running in general and uh, ultra running in particular. Um, well, that can be a long story, so I'll try to keep <laughs> We'll keep it short. I became a physical therapist. I've been one for about 11 years. It was high school coaching that got me into physical therapy. And it was my own running career, both in high school and college, that got me into high school coaching. And so when I got into coaching, I'm trying to help these kids and get better. And, and they kept running into injuries, and I kept getting injured. And there just seemed to be, like, good, useful sources of um, or resources for runners out there. And so I, this was back in the very early days of Dr. Google. I would go online and try to learn as much as I could. And, and at some point, I got injured myself and went to a really good physical therapist. And it was like a light switch that went off. And um, it is like, wow, this is what I should be doing. I should try to properly learn how to help people. And, and that's what I did. And so um, my clinical practice um, really is coaching dominant, meaning it's how do we use our bodies to and how does how does how we move how we run impact how we feel in addition to how we perform right so yeah that's it's been a nice amalgam 
or, um, of, or combination of coaching and physical therapy. There's such a um, tremendous overlap. Yeah, I and, love reading your stuff online wherever I find it, either on your blog or on various other sites, because you, first of all, you're, you're an excellent writer and you're able to distill things, kind of complicated things down pretty succinctly so that, you know, even lay people can understand them pretty well. But it, you also don't fit necessarily in terms of at least your your what you're putting out into uh, the world for general consumption. You don't fit neatly into just a physical therapy box or just a coaching box or, or anything like that. I, I find you have a lot of a lot of good points to make in 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 terms of building a training plan, in terms of scheduling uh, a race season or preparing for a race, in terms of injury recovery, injury prevention, but also, you know, a, a very, uh, what seems like a strong interest and, and expertise in the mental aspect of the sport and in, in, in kind of promoting growth mentally and, and wellness and um, just overall general health and satisfaction with sport and life. Well, I, I think that there's so much overlap in all of that. And so, again, like I said, I think the, the overlap between physical therapy and this idea of, okay, I have, I have a physical injury, physical pain versus performance, which is also physical pain. And, and how do you balance stress versus rest and things like that? Everything, you just start to see similarities when you open your eyes to, to other things. And what I try to do in my career whether it's physical therapy, coaching, or writing, as to what are the common threads in all of these different disciplines and what can we learn from something else that we can then bring to running or running to life. And I think that's what's really interesting. And I just look at running as an avenue, as a lot of people do. It's an avenue for personal growth. It's an avenue for community involvement. Right. I look at my work. The totality of my work is how can I help people to personally grow, but also to be involved in the community and feel like they belong somewhere. And so I'm really passionate about helping people in that regard in any way that I can and, and finding any thread possible that I can. Now, at what point did you move into the ultra space? Because that is tied up inextricably with your relationship with Western States. And I'll let you tell the story of, of how you got into Western States. But w when did you make the step into ultras? Did you know that that was always going to be something for you? And, and how did that lead to your, your kind of lifelong love affair with this race? Um, I've always loved the outdoors. I grew up in Northern Minnesota and, and was in an athletic family, but no one ran and just, we just spent a lot of time outside. And then when I started running in high school, at some point post-collegiately, it was like, wow, like I should just do this running thing on trails. And then it's like the mid 2000s. I mean, I was clueless about trail running or ultras by then, um, even that recently. And I'm out in a run. I'm like, wow, we should like, there should be races on trail. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like you would invent it. Yeah. In my head. So um, it was about that time. I'm back living in the um, in the Twin Cities, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul area, and a news story came out about Scott Jurek, this guy from northern Minnesota, sure. doing a rail race. And I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, holy crap, I can't believe people do this. This is so cool. And that was the first idea I'd heard, um, or first time I'd heard about Western states or really any ultra at all. And um, and then fast forward to 2010, um, and I was in my second year clinical practice, and I treated my first ultra runner who had run Western States, and it was May of 10, and she's like, yeah, you should, 
you can go online and, and you can pace if you want. And so I went online, I found a guy who's rather competitive and still competitive, John Tidd, who is, um, who wound up, he's, I think, placed top 10 before at UTMB. And he was running his first Western States and needed somebody. He wanted somebody kind of, you know, in shape to be able to run with him. And so just on a whim, I went and paced him on Cal Street at the 2010 Western States. And that was, um, was like this eye-opening, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing experience. And so at that moment, it was like, okay, I want to do this. So you hadn't run a trail race before then? Um, I had done like a trail 10K. Right. Okay. At that point, you know, I had just run, been, I was still training for fast road marathons and things like that. So it didn't occur to me that like I should really do these things more in a more serious way or that there was any such thing as like a long ultra marathon before Western States. Right. That that's a, I, I had basically the same or a very similar experience is my introduction to both Western States and to ultra running as you, albeit several years earlier. I was, I was there in 2005 for Scott's last win. Actually, um, I had been the year before I had been doing an elective rotation during my residency at Yosemite uh, Valley in the medical clinic there. And mm. one of the kind of preceptors on that rotation was a an ER physician by the name of Gary Toll, who was on the board at Western States for many years. Yeah. And so he, oh, Gary. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, he, we worked together for probably a couple of weeks while he was he was there precepting me and and you know we talked about running and everything else and he started telling me about this race and i i was vaguely aware of the western states race in general but hadn't hadn't really dove into it and i, I was kind of like you i was training for fast marathons at the time or you know fast for me slow to the rest of the world but uh, he 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 was he just kept talking so lovingly about this race, and he convinced. He said, "If you want to come out, I can get you, you know, a medical volunteer and do this and that." And so I did in two thousand five. And you know, I had I had until that point, I had thought of ultras as kind of like for you know just people who couldn't hack it at shorter distances. <laughs> it was you know kind of a very let's run centric view of the world. And then when I got there and I saw Scott, I mean, I, I was at Michigan Bluff all day, and then at the finish. Um, but when I saw Scott come through Michigan Bluff with the lead and it just blew me away, I was like, wow, these people are real legit athletes. And then just seeing, you know, all these different stories of people coming through all day. And then I, you know, I cleared the the aid station and drove immediately to the finish just in time to see Scott finish. And then I worked the aid station at the, or the you know, the, basically the finish line medical tent for the remainder of the night. And it was that, that you know, I, I registered for my first ultra, you know, uh, less than a month after that. And that sold me on a one day wanting to do this race. So very similar kind of story. Cool. So yeah. we both decided we wanted into this race and, and, you know, but it took me, like I said, I, I, I started running ultras uh, about a year later and it, you know, I was in the kind of boat of, I'm not going to be ready for a hundred for a while. And I did not run a hundred for almost, uh, no, uh, about 10 years, actually, before I, I even attempted my first 100 miler. But you got into it fairly quickly. Tell us how you came into Western States the first time around. So, um, you know, by 2010, the 2010, I believe, was the first year of the 
initial compounding lottery system, the N plus one system. Right. So before that was the two-time loser um, system. So that was basically, that that had been, if you didn't get in two years in a row, the third year you were guaranteed an entry. Correct. And And so they... Correct me if I'm wrong, but but before, I'm sorry to interrupt, but when, when the two-time loser system was around before the compounding lottery, you didn't even need, you needed a qualifier, but you didn't even need a qualifier to enter the lottery. If you entered the lottery and were selected, you just needed a qualifier before the start of the following year's race. And it didn't, and it, it could have been any, basically any 50 miler, as long as you hit the, the prescribed time. I, yeah, I'm not familiar with that. With that detail i'm not sure but but certainly in 2010 um, even though the the lottery had started this n plus one system the qualifying system was still pretty easy and and 50 milers and and flat and so after going to western states i'm like i want to do this and like everyone else which we'll talk about i'm like well if i want to do this i need to start now right so I was training for another fast marathon. I, was, I ran Twin Cities Marathon in early October 2010. And then four weeks later, as the window of qualification was closing, I found a 50-miler um, just outside of Portland. Ran the 50-miler, loved it, did did well, thought it was really cool. And six weeks later, I'm like, okay, on one <laughs> quarter, I'm putting into the lottery. And so sure enough, um, I'm kind of watching it on the computer it, it it glitches out i turn it off to go do a little workout and come back and and sure enough i'm i get picked and so here i am my ultra sign up is one <laughs> career states it's like this classic holy shit moment right so what 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 was that for you was it uh excitement was it fear was it panic was it a mixture of things um i was total excitement in it's worth noting it's like was i completely prepared to run western states no but i was 100 percent um enthusiastically wanting to run it and to be honest from a fitness standpoint from just a, a base fitness standpoint that was the i was in the fittest shape of my life at that point and so i wasn't ready in the classic sense but i'm like this is amazing right. i'm just so absolutely excited i printed out the you know, participant guide and carried it around and was like studying it. I mean, it was just a thing, but it didn't change the fact that I was grossly unprepared for the specificity of running any hundred mile or let alone Western. Right, right. And so, you know, to just keep this story rather minimal, I ran into some issues. I ran a 50K, then I ran the AR50, slathered in olive oil. I wound up hurting my knee, missed a bunch of training, and it was really kind of scary as to whether or not I could run. But I made a rather remarkable recovery just in time, got some miles in, you know, during Western State training camp and had a pretty good run. I mean, it wasn't an amazing run, but I ran just over 20 hours. And I think the most important thing is I just had a really positive experience. Right. My family came out and they embraced it and they loved the community and I had an amazing time. And that really set forth in motion to me, you know, both the preparation and thereafter, like... Western States really impacted my life like it does a lot of people. And I got in rather quickly. I got a positive experience quickly. And then subsequently, I got into the race other ways. I began to volunteer. I began to pace. And it was something that I did. It was just in my blood thereafter. And you got in the following year via the golden ticket system? Correct. 
where did you get your ticket? So that was Bandera in 2012. And um, that was also a fairly memorable race in so far as the top five, top five guys at Bandera in 2012 wound up in the top 10 of Western Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Tim Olson So that was the year that Tim won. Okay, yes. I remember when Tim winning at Bandera that year. So he went to Bandera having already had a spot um, and, and won. Dave Mackey was second, so right. he got the... I was third. I passed Dylan Bowman with a mile and a half to go and beat him by about 90 seconds, and then Nick Clark was maybe five minutes behind. Wow. Um, Thinking back, you know, just top of my head at Bandera, that's probably the best Bandera field ever. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of in terms of finishing depth, it was um, yeah, it was pretty pretty cool. And then you were and you were top ten that year at Western States. You were ninth, correct? Correct. Yeah. Right. And so, did you go back again in 2013? I did. I went back in 2013, overzealous in my training and my approach, and that was the super hot year. It was the third hottest year on record. Right. Um, started cramping, um, coming into Robinson Flat and cramped for about 25 miles straight before I left Michigan Bluff. I tried to get some work done on my legs and couldn't run downhill, like, at all. <laughs> That's when I pulled the plug. Okay. okay. And so, yeah, then, uh, you know, I haven't been able to run since. And and since then, I think my relationship with the race has changed um, in, in a mostly positive way where it's no longer necessarily me being the runner and being the taker. It's been returning as a pacer, returning as general volunteer and, and medical volunteer. So that's where we wanted to kind of jump in, I think, is, right. So, I mean, you had this great experience early on and it grew into this wonderful relationship with this race and this this community and and you know for for folks who may be listening who have not been to western states in any capacity before either as a, a pacer or a crew or a runner or a volunteer it, it is a, a you know i, I don't want to oversell it but i usually do on on this show but it, it is a fairly magical place and experience just the community around the race the the volunteers there the course itself the, the board and, and, and everyone who makes this race happen, it, it, it really is special. And I think it, it's a testament to that race that it has become not only the, you know, for, for want of a better word, the, the Boston Marathon of ultra running, but it also, as we see with you and me and, and many other people, it's, it's this gateway into the sport in such a wonderful way. And I think that is well-deserved because of all the history and the work and, and the enthusiasm that go into it. But having said that, you, you know, you had this, this wonderful introduction to the race and to the sport, and it's grown into this wonderful relationship. And yet, you know, you're at the point now where you haven't run the race in six years, seven years. And, and uh, that, that is kind of the problem that we wanted to talk about today. The, the, or if you, if you want to consider it a problem, which I think you and I both, both do to some, to some extent. The current lottery system was implemented in 2012 in response to, I don't want to say the failure of the two-time loser system, but basically the, the fact that it got overwhelmed by two-time losers by, by entrance. And then the, the, I guess the problem with the, the initial weighted lottery, the N plus one system, as you, as you had described it, is that the board felt it wasn't 
quite uh, rewarding enough to people who were either racing year after year or entering the lottery year after year? Yes. And I'll, I'll it's, it's important to kind of preface some of the things that I say a couple different ways. Number one, um, I got tremendous mentorship in my initial running of Western States through Craig Thornley and his group of trail runners in Eugene. That was such a just amazing gift. And it really opened the door towards, you know, not only about the passion about the race, but some of the inner goings on with the race. And so um, I remember, I almost remember the moment when he was telling us on one of our weekly runs about changing to this system. And it was around 2012. And, um, and I remember thinking, oh, like, hmm, two to the N minus one. Yeah, let, we'll get people in and get them out. And that's, and I'm like, oh, that sounds good. And I didn't think about it anymore. And the reason I didn't think about it anymore is I didn't need to. Like, <laughs> I, I raced my way in. And it was, I think it was, might have been the spring or the fall of 12. Either way, I was in. I was either in from Bandera or in from top 10. And it, it just didn't cross my mind to really give it any more thought. Right. A lot of the things, a lot of the opinions are the things that I'll express were either things that I've gleaned from that relationship with him or things that I have learned from being around the race or some of my discussions and emails back and forth with the board. But it, it would be nice. Unfortunately, we're going to make a lot of inferences about the board. But I, until they come forward and are willing to talk to someone like you or someone else, we don't know... I don't want to put words in their mouth and say, well, the board thinks this, or they want to do that. And it's tough to say, I can only go based on what I've heard. Okay. So that that's one caveat. And then the other one is, is, is it's really my motivation behind this. Isn't necessarily, it isn't at all about me and my willingness to run this race again. I've had my chances. And to be honest, if I run this race again, I want it to be in a capacity where I'm capable of placing top 10 again. And so I'm willing to and, and wanting to earn that through some other means outside of the lottery. And so where my frustration comes from is, is in part in being a coach. Mm -hmm. So I have athletes who are devoting their lives, big chunks of their lives, to try to perpetuate getting into this race. And I've coached for seven years and I have a stable of about a dozen athletes and no one's ever gotten in which isn't statistically remarkable, but I'm invested in this process and looking at what happens to my athletes as they're trying to get in. And the, the memory to me that it was like this, oh my gosh, moment was I was in attendance at the 2016 lottery and I'm just kind of watching this go down and I'm watching the math and I've watched this for a few years now, the number of, you know, four time losers, five times, six times, and we're, we're sitting there, I'm like, this math doesn't make sense. And um, at the lottery that year, you know, th there's always the highest tier number of people, right? Of like, and back in 2016, I think the most consecutive losers, so to speak, or non-entrance was a six-time non-entrant. Right. So there was this idea that the board believed that, well, we'll, we'll clear out that top level every year. Right. Like, well, wait a second, that math doesn't work. <laughs> right. So we're sitting there and they'd cleared out, they'd selected all but probably one guy. And they're like, okay, well, 
how do you guys feel if we just give this one person one of the in-person lottery drawing spots? Because back then there were five spots, there are now three, that if you attend the lottery in person right. and you've qualifier, that they select, they draw your name and you get a spot. Right. And so they're like, oh, let's do that. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, no, this is precedent setting, you're, you're cheating the system. And, because, and, and it's obviously not a sustainable solution the next well, no. time this comes up, obviously, which we're going to get into. You fast forward three years, there's, there's, I, I, I have to look at these exact numbers, but there's, oh, I have them here. now there's eight time winners that aren't, that aren't getting picked. So, so three years ago, you let someone who had only failed or only had to wait six years, you're now not, you're not giving the person who has the eight year loser that same opportunity. Right. And so they keep sort of trying to chisel or cheat the system. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, like, this is unsustainable. Like they're, they're this mathematically, you will never get in. And then the last thing that I heard is Craig is on stage and he's like, you guys just keep trying and we'll get you in. Like we will get you in. And I'm like, no, like that's, that's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong because it's wrong that he wants to get them in. I think that's wonderful. And I think it's an important objective to have that people who try hard enough should be able to get in. That's wonderful. Where that, where that statement is incorrect is mathematically it is unsustainable. Right. And that unsustainable, but you're sending a message that if you apply, we will get you in. And the, the whole intent of a lottery, it's impossible. You can't, no one buys a Powerball ticket because somebody in the state government or the national lottery is guaranteeing that if they buy enough lottery tickets, they win. And that's, that's where the travesty comes in is, is that there's no guarantees to the system, yet people are being incentivized because they think that they will be. So just to just to put the numbers on this this uh, problem that you were just uh, alluding to, so that was 2016 where they kind of snuck in the last of the six-time uh, misses, six-time entrants. This year we had, uh, in the 2019 lottery, we had nine people who were in for their eighth consecutive year. One of them did not get selected, and their workaround, I guess, this year was to put him at the top of the wait list, him or her. Right. I'm not sure who it was, and, and that person will likely get in. Uh, by virtue of the wait list. If you look down the list at the seven-year entrance, there were 54 seven-year entrants this year, and I think only 16 of them got in. So that means 70% of them did not get in. The same thing goes for the six-year entrance, of which you said last year, or in 2016, just three years ago, right, there were only five or six. This year, there were 126, of which 88, another 70% did not get in. So next yeah. year, we're looking at even building in some attrition, at least 30 people in the eight-year entrant category. And I'm going to say at least 70 to 75 in the seven-year entrant category, which means that we're looking at at least 15 to 20 nine-year entrants two years from now, which, yeah. which means we're looking at in three years uh, at least 10 10-year entrants. So there are <laughs> going to be five, I would say roughly five, 10-year entrance in three years who are not getting in, which is insane. Yeah. And, and that, that, you know, that 
like you said, you you alluded to another one of their cheats was well, we'll add them to the wait list. Well, then how long? And you just said it. It's like if you said, okay, well, eight an eight year applicant, that's our cutoff. They for sure get in. Well, how how many years till the entire fifty person wait list is rejected eight year applicants? Well, the the answer will probably be two or three. I mean, if if it's going to be everyone on the eight-year list who didn't get in next year, that's going to be 20 people conservatively. Yeah. Um, and so that's the math problem. Right. And that, and then I started, it, it got me thinking, it's not just a, it's a math problem that's then driven by, by the, the incentive of the lottery. And that... Yeah, so explain, explain your point there, because this is, this is kind of the key point that, that I think is, is being lost on some people. And so, you know, back in 2016, I didn't necessarily, I mean, obviously the idea of premature entry was like, okay, premature entry to back then meant what I was in 2010. I definitely want to run it, but I'm not quite ready yet. Yeah, maybe I'd prefer if I ran it in, you know, a year later. Right. After 2016 is when I started to see increasing numbers of people who are publicly saying, I do not want to run this year. Like, I really hope I don't get picked. So say we're talking about the 2020 race. I do not want to run in 2020. I'm only doing this because I really want to run in 21. Or or even later. It's just the yeah. process, like you say, the process, just getting tickets, starting to accumulate tickets and get them in the bucket. Exactly. And that's what really became nauseating to me was like, holy crap, there, there are these people that are basically being forced to enter and they just don't want to run this here. And, and I think a few years ago that was unfathomable to a lot of people, but now you're finally starting to see that thanks to social media you're starting to see that sentiment actually being expressed. And that was really bothersome to me because there's so few entrants, 379 or 69, whatever it is, so few of those entrants. A system is broken if there's even one person on that starting line who doesn't 100% want to run that year. Right, when there are so many people who have been you know, planning for this for years. Exactly. And there's so many people that are this passionate about this race. If you are not 100% enthusiastic and, and willing to run this year, that is a flawed system. But unfortunately, what a geometric or a compounding system does is it, is it provides that incentive. It incentivizes not only entry. And I think the, the original intent of the board was let's incentivize or reward persistence. Right. But they didn't understand or they didn't take, they may have understood. They didn't take into account that there's going to be people that are, that are recognizing this insane demand, but also recognizing the incentive. If I start now in X plus five or X plus whatever number of years, I will then get in. But then you have these oh shit moments of people, not only like me, the oh shit of, I didn't think I'd get in this year, but now they don't want to run. And that's just such a huge problem. But the, the, the real problem is, and it's substantiated by the data that the race puts out, is that with each subsequent year that you wait, you're being punished for waiting. Right. And so I 
data in front of me right now that says the first year of the lottery, the, there it is, the, the, your percent odds for a single ticket in 2014, which I believe was the first year of the two to the N minus one. So we're talking about the 2013 lottery. There's 5.6%. 2015, it went down to 4.7, 4.5, 2.5, 2.3, And now for the 2020 race, we're down to a 1.3% chance on a single ticket. So where's the incentive for a runner like me or you who wants to run but isn't ready? What's the incentive to wait? Right. I mean, in five years, is it going to be a half a percent? or a tenth of a percent. And so it, it's become this bum rush or this bank panic where everyone's rushing the door even though they don't really need, you know, or they don't really want to run this year. And then the flip side of this, that the uh, that of this system, is it creates this kind of multi-year um, loser, <laughs> to, to use a, an indelicate term, that that you've identified where you really are starting to get into this kind of qualifier and lottery fatigue but you are again to use the same word incentivized to continue because you've got so much sweat equity already put in and this is the position where i am starting to find myself even as somebody who you know to me this is you know when people say what's your bucket list bucket list race uh, you know people talk about hard rock and they talk about utmb and everything else uh, it it states for me states is the be all and end all for me in this sport or, or for what i i mean you know there are plenty of other races i want to run and, and things i would like to accomplish but if you you know it, it's it's not even close that to me states is the pinnacle and and the thing that i really want to to run and experience as a racer and and accomplish and and hopefully run well um this is my, I forget now, fourth or fifth year, and I, I'm starting to get tired. I mean, I'm getting to the point where I'm tired of running the same qualifying races over and over. I'm tired of traveling to run qualifying races, and I'm tired of, you know, kind of, like you say, seeing the odds shrink every year. And, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm not getting into this race until I'm probably 50. I, I'm, I'm 44. I started applying for this race when I was 40, and it, it's it's very unlikely that I'm going to get in before I'm 50. And that is a exhausting, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's, I think kind of problematic in that it has kind of, and, and I think you identified in this in your post or posts that it, it's kind of gotten people to the point where there are plenty of other things that they want to do and they want to, you know, focus on, but they uh, they feel like they can't turn away from this just because of all the effort that has already gone into getting to the point where they're at. Let me ask a question of you. How tired is your body? How are you physically as a ultra runner in terms of your training and racing capacity now versus four years ago? I would say... I am on the downside of my peak. I think uh, three to two to three years ago was probably, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, I hope to extend that peak. And, and you know, I still think that I, I've, I've not yet hit my peak performances at 100 miles at 24 hours. But uh, the, the, the window for that sort of thing is closing for me. You know, I can still... I think I've got a couple more years of, you know, competing at 
you know, my potential. Uh, and that's pretty much it. And so, right, if states does not happen, and I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, it's unlikely that I would ever be somebody who would be a top 10 at states. But I think if it happens in the next couple of years, a top 20 would be a possibility. Beyond maybe two years from now, that, that is out the window. Well, the, the reason I ask this is there, there's two, there's two you know, aspects of fatigue. And so I'll address the first one. The, the first one that you said is it really goes to one of the second order effects of a compounding lottery system is, or really any lottery system, but especially a compounding one where you must serially apply is the effects on the other races and on the runners to get the qualifier. And right. that was exhausting for me as a coach of, we have to base an entire year on getting a qualifier and maintaining a qualifier. And so there's that. And, and I think if I were to speak for the board, they would say, well, okay, well, I'm sorry that you don't like to do that, but there's lots of other people that are totally fine with doing that. And those are the ones that are getting the race. And, and you know, that, that's just a decision that you're making. That's what I would think that they would say. What, there, but there's another fatigue that's more relevant that, that strikes to the integrity of the race because there's, there's two sides to the, the premature entry problem. There's a premature entrant and there is a post-mature entrant, or really what I want to call this is a stale entrant. And so the premature entrant is somebody like me or somebody worse than me where they're either physically not ready or they just absolutely don't want to run. And so, yes, that's a problem. But on the other side, you have the stale entrant. And I don't think you, you're, you're at that level yet, but there are the people that have been that have not only peaked out, but maybe they are no longer, you know, have the orthopedic integrity to be able to run a successful hundred miler, but they are, they, if they do not keep applying every year with the caveat, we'll say, okay, yes, there, we, we should talk about the one time lottery buy, but let's say you have used your one time lottery buy for whatever reason, but now you're wearing down physically. You're wearing down physically, but you can't stop. Because right. if you stop, you lose you lose everything. You go bankrupt. And so now you, you have another cohort of people that are running that aren't really ready to run. But, okay, I'm an eight-time loser. I'm kind of burnt out or I have orthopedic sensitivities. Oh, my gosh, non-picked. And I've, I've got friends of mine that were in this position that they're, they're basically physically compromised. Had they been picked six years ago, they, oh my gosh, they, not only would they have had a more successful run, but they would have, you know, had a more enjoyable run and more, um, a faster run. And so now you have this other cohort, this stale cohort that are taking up tickets because they can't stop. And that's such an interesting part. And I hope we have time to talk about the Hard Rock Lottery because the Hard Rock Lottery, while complex and, and arguably too complex, allows for unlimited deferrals. And that's super interesting because if you have an unlimited deferral system, if you, don't, if you want to take five years off of running 100 milers, you don't accumulate any more tickets, which is a huge thing, but you don't lose them. Right. And so... You, you, you can't argue with someone who is a 10-year ultra veteran who's run 20 hundred milers. They're not premature. They're not, you know, inexperienced. 
but they may not be ready to run Western states the year they're picked. And so the wonderful thing about the unlimited de deferral process for Hard Rock is no one is entering, no veteran ultra runner is entering the Hard Rock lottery that year unless they want to run. Because there's, there's, no, there's no punishment if they take the year off. Right. There's no penalty to skipping a year. And so, so now, and, and almost no one talks about that, about that cohort. That's, that's like the other tail of the, the Western States entrance. And these tails are getting bigger and bigger. The, the young runner or the inexperienced runner who's unprepared and un, not wanting to run, or the burnt out, injured, sensitive runner who's been trying for eight years, doesn't really want to run this year and is now forced to run. And so like how, how, how big does your field of unwilling and unprepared runners need to be before you're like, mm, we have a problem. And that's what I keep seeing. I keep seeing this on both ends. And so that's, that's the, I think that's the, the frustration or fatigue that I think that the race and the board needs to worry about is you're getting runners who, who, who are injured or battered, but they cannot stop because there's no system that allows them to stop without going to the back of the line, right. which by the back of the line is getting longer and longer and longer and longer. Right. So I, I do want to get into the, the hard rock lottery and we can kind of go through quickly how that works and, and your proposal on, you know, what maybe Western states can do to address this issue. Before we get into that, though, I, I, I wanted to touch on what you kind of term the second order effects. And we, we talked about this briefly. Specifically, I wanted to talk about the impact that that this system and, you know, Western states, I, I don't I don't blame the board or, or the race for the position of primacy that they hold within the sport. But because of this problem, uh, this mathematical geometrical problem that we've talked about and this, you know, need to accumulate tickets and, and continually qualify, it, it's kind of having a, I think, a top-down effect on the rest of the sport in that it's creating a two-tiered, um, almost a caste system among shorter ultras of, or, or uh, of, of basically qualifiers and non-qualifiers and uh, the type of races that people are choosing to run uh, versus maybe the type of races that they want to run. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, um, I had someone comment on one of my blog posts and I want to try to actually like credit them for this statement. And they had basically said that we're talking about these second order effects and the second order effect is, I mean, for, to just kind of define that it's something that's delayed onset that that's like another sort of dimension away from the primary issue and so you think okay well it's all about western states and, and getting tickets and whatever the second order effects are what what does it do to the rest of the sport what does it do to these other races and like you said it does put pressure on races that are qualifiers or races to become qualifiers so they have enough people to run but I had a commenter on my blog really leave an impactful statement where he said that one of the interesting um, second order effects, not only, yes, it's a pain for runners to have to base their year around qualifiers, but you are now crowding out people. Let's say that you love Bandera. And I know people, I know a lot of friends in Texas who love Bandera. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe Bandera is not the best example because it is a large field. But if we talk about Waldo, which is my home race, mm-hmm. Waldo is 125 entrants. Um, I I love Waldo, and I know a lot of local people that love Waldo. What's happening to qualifying races is they're being overwhelmed by people that don't really want to run Waldo. They just need a qualifier. That's right. And maybe they they need a qualifier in August in the Western part of the US that's only 100K. And so now people that are, they just want to run Waldo because they love Waldo. They don't care about a 100-mile race, but they're being crowded out of races um, because you have people showing up that don't really care about the race in question. They only need the qualifier. And I think that that's, that's an, the board can say, well, that's an unfortunate side effect. But when you have a system that requires you qualify every single year, year after year, you're driving up the number of people that are, are going to have that second order effect. And I think that's unfortunate. I mean, this is a problem that is probably exacerbated or, or I guess, um, even more apparent on the East Coast where there are so few qualifiers. I mean, the Northeast, exactly. the Northeast has five or six qualifiers and only a couple of them under the 100-mile distance. Twisted Branch is a fairly new 100K trail run that became a qualifier last year and sold out in hours this year because it's in the same kind of kind of uh, scenario where it's a, a limited field of about 160 or 170. And it's great that, that the popularity of Western states has allowed this race to kind of thrive and grow. But it, we're already at the point four years or five years in with Twisted Branch where it's, I haven't spoken to the organizers, but I, I can't imagine we're far away from a lottery for that race. I mean, there's only so many years where you can sustain, you know, uh, first come, first serve it for a 160, 170 person field that sells out in hours um and that that's that's the kind of and i mean bandera when i when i first ran bandera which i i agree is a fantastic race and i that's a race that i would choose to run even if it wasn't a qualifier i I love it and i think that that those guys do a great job putting it on and it's a great course but when i first did it in 2015 or 2016 that race uh i mean i i signed up I don't know, a couple of weeks before, and, and that race sells out now pretty quickly. I mean, it, it sold out at least a month in advance this year, and that's, as you said, a very large field. Yeah, and yeah, it, it, it just, again, um, even if the, the sport continues to grow at a modest rate, um, you're just going to continue to see that. Right. Okay, so let's, uh, we are going to start running short on time, and I definitely want to talk about the potential solution to this this issue which is i think you correctly identified going to be you know a little bit of a bite the bullet and take your medicine kind of thing but is probably a necessary corrective at some point and your proposed solution is kind of a hybrid of the hard rock system and kind of an unweighted lottery system so let me briefly summarize the hard rock system if i can and correct me on, on any of the details that I may get wrong, but Hard Rock basically has three separate lotteries uh, split among three different categories. There's a, a lottery for folks who have never before finished the race. There's a lottery for what are called the veterans who have finished five or more times. And then there's a lottery for everyone else. That's people who have finished between one and four times. And there are three separate lotteries and three separate wait lists for each of those categories. And... Um, Within those categories, 
I believe they have a similar geometrically compounding system as Western states does, or at least for the, the never start, the, the, the zero time starters, uh, it compounds similarly. Is that correct? Um, I believe so. And again, I'm not an expert on, on hard rock. So sure. I, there, there may be aspects of this that I, that I may not get correct. That's fine. But, and I think an, another uh, kind of important aspect of the hard rock system that you identified is that there's no penalty for not entering for a year. There, you, you keep your tickets until you uh, either enter, uh, you keep your tickets forever or until you uh, gain entry to the race. That's correct. And so my understanding of the, of the, their lottery system is it's, they do the same, unfortunately, um, compounding system, but they also, and then, and so you, you'd also mentioned that they, that, that you can defer without losing your tickets. They also have a very interesting, if not very complicated way of adding tickets based on volunteer. And I find that to be to be rather interesting. And um, while it adds complexity, it has an interesting second order effect because it gets people like you and I, and you and I are are, are rare examples because we were exposed to the race before we wanted to run it. Right. We went to the race before we really wanted to run it. We checked it out. We're like, wow, this is amazing. Most people at this point, it's hype. They've, a lot of them and almost most of my athletes haven't been there. And so they're, they, they've never experienced it. And so one of the interesting effects that the Hard Rock Lottery has is by rewarding, they're incentivizing volunteering. And that is a philosophical decision they make. But what, what that does is it gets people involved with the race in a positive way. And you have to wonder if you get involved in Hard Rock and you just show up and you're like, I just want to volunteer or I'm just volunteering, working aid station, medical, whatever. I wonder if some of those people are like, you know what? Like if I don't necessarily get in, it's not a big deal because I just love being a part of this family. I think that's such a different view than a lot of Western states entrants, including some of my running coaching clients who ne they don't get involved. They just keep applying and then they get bitter and they lose their tickets and they're like, well, screw this race. I don't want to do it. It's just dumb. I don't like the system. And it, they get bitter and they get bitter because they've never experienced what you and I got to an experience. Right. And that's it, what's keeping that's, me from kind of falling off of this this cliff of, you know, frustration and, and you know, uh, despair uh, about this situation is that, right, I've, I've been there, like I said, as a volunteer, I've been there twice as a pacer and a crew member. And, and every time I go, I'm renewed by you know, by this race and, and my excitement and my, my love for it. And right. So that, that's, that's an advantage, I guess, that I have in, in this system as opposed to somebody. And, and with the thousands of, of new applicants every year, the vast majority of them, like you said, have no real relationship to the race outside of the hype. And it's going to be easy for them to become, uh, to, to despair in it. Exactly. And so, yeah, there's more complexity, but they, but there's, I think there's a lot more control in their system. And so the stratified system, they made a decision and it's their board's decision that they wanted to value veterans, but they also want to give newcomers a opportunity to run. And that the stratified system then allows them, gives them the, the control to set those sort of parameters. 
And the interesting thing is, is, you know, based on my experiences, when these lotteries came out, you know, 12 years, uh, eight years ago now, was that was the same intent of the Western States Board. They did not want to see Western States overrun by novelty-seeking first-time runners. And so they wanted to, to provide a system by which they would have veterans, or really what you would call people that are members of the family. They're part of the Western States family. They volunteer. They come cheer. They support the race. They don't want those people crowded out. And so I think their solution to that need was, well, let's just reward them because they're going to they're gonna want to they'll run a qualifier year after year after year. But they're not getting that. The board is no longer getting that control. They don't they're not necessarily getting veterans and locals and part of the family in where I think Hard Rock is. They're saying, OK, we, we value five plus finishers. We really value you if you come and do trail work and volunteer at the race. Right. And so there's a set about that greater control. And that's that gets after what I wanted to do or for what states is you, you can't. You need a system that if it's going to be complex, you've got to have more control. And to have three separate sub-lotteries um, in the way that Hard Rock does, first-timers, veterans, and everyone else. And in my proposal, I have what are called supermasters, which are people that are 50-plus who can't afford to wait that long. Um, that gives the, the board the control to have the diversity that they value. Right. Now, the, the key difference between your proposal and the Hard Rock proposal is that you advocate for a straight lottery-based system, a non-compounding, non-geometric uh, solution. Basically, one, you know, every year you enter is one ticket. Exactly. And that's, I think that's so important because you, a geometric reward is going to drive a geometric demand. And so... You have to, you just have to get rid of it. You have to get rid of any incentive that would drive somebody to, to um, apply prematurely. Right. Or to keep to, or, or on the flip side to, to keep applying even in years exactly. where, where you, you're wishing you don't want to run or, or you're, you're not prepared to run for whatever reason to eliminate that incentive basically, or, or that need to, to hold on to your tickets. Exactly. So, so under in a basic lottery system, you're going to get rid of those two pathological tales of your entrance. The premature people, there's no incentives. And I'll, I'll put a caveat on that. There's still going to be people like me in 2010 and you that are like, I'm not totally ready, but I 110% want to run. You're always going to have that's totally okay, but it's going to get rid of entirely the people that are like, I do not want to run this year. Right, right. Be it and, either because they're, they're you know, years away from being ready to do it, or like the case that you made in, in one of your posts was the case of Bob Hearn, who is somebody who could very well be a top 10 contender, but, you know, he has other things that he wants to run this year. I, I can't remember exactly how his schedule plays out, but he keeps entering and hoping that he doesn't get picked, even as somebody who could very well be a, a contender for a top 10 spot. Yeah, exactly. And so as, as kind of novel as it is to have a, a rewarding or a compounding system, there's just there's too much incentive and you just have to get rid of that.
there's just no other way. And I, I mean, we touched on this. There are there are going to be people uh, who enter this for several years in a row who are eventually just never going to get in. Their careers are going to end before they're able to finish this. And and as as kind of as much control as the Hard Rock Board maintains over the race with their bucket system, they're going to they are I think already in the situation where. There are many, many people who have applied for several years, especially now. This is going to be significantly worse after last year's unfortunate cancellation, where there are just there are too many entrants and there are you know, more than too many entrants. There are too many tickets for, you know, those 60 slots that they have in the never starters buckets uh, that, that will ever really be able to kind of clear the decks, like you say. Yeah. So what are what are the. Or, or take me briefly through your proposed rollout of this, because you're not advocating a, a immediate adaptation or immediate uh, erasing all the tickets. Correct, and I, I it's it's not a. F- I mean, obviously there would just be the the uproar. Right. If you just totally abolish that um, that system, and again, it becomes part of this problem because you get this possession possessiveness or this I these are my tickets I've earned these tickets when in reality they really afford you nothing because you can lose them at any time and there's no guarantee you'll ever get picks it's just not mathematically sound right but they'll have this possessiveness right and so you can't say well I've someone's been earning all this and now they're gonna be on par with the first timer and so you basically would have to do not necessarily separate lotteries but you'd have to have um You'd have to retain those tickets, but allow the people who say they've had 64 tickets, they would just, they would keep 64 until they either were selected or they would crap out by either quitting or becoming injured or whatever. Right. And then no new accumulation beyond that point, basically. Exactly. So all new applicants receive only one ticket and, um, and then you just... the number of years then that it would take to to get everyone down to a single ticket would be a while and so there would still be an incentive for people unfortunately if you were a 64 ticket person you'd still have that driving incentive to want to continue you're not going to the stale athlete necessarily but at least you would get rid of the premature entrance in there and and eventually you will clear the decks that way eventually yes right Right. Just a couple more. Th- I know I know we have to go, but uh, just a couple more questions to, to kind of put a bow on this. What what kind of uh, feedback, positive and or negative, have you gotten from this on, what, since you posted it about a month ago after the lottery? Um, I think it's been overwhelmingly positive. And I felt, you know, it's an interesting thing because people love Western states. It's very personal. It's very family. I am friends with multiple board members and it's hard to tell a friend that maybe what they're doing isn't maybe the best possible thing that they're doing. Whereas if you, if there's a company and they ripped you off and their product you don't like, you have no problem kind of um, berating or, or sending a nasty letter <laughs> to complain about a service. It's, it's different in the sport. It's so personal. Certainly I was really apprehensive about doing this. And I've been apprehensive for years about it. And I admittedly, I've had some negative brushback from it. Um, but overwhelmingly, it's been a positive 
not necessarily like, yeah, this is, we need to do this and the current system is no good. It's like, n- n- yeah, there, there's an issue with this system. Let's keep talking. Let's, let's keep thinking about this. And that's been the overwhelming um, feedback that I've gotten, that people acknowledge that it's not working. People acknowledge that what I am putting forth, my arguments are valid. And it's, I think it's spurred a lot of good discussion. And I've, I've been really pleased with that. What specific, if any, what specific problems have people raised with this idea? Or is it just, is, I, I take it that there's no longer or maybe not as much a sense that, that there isn't really a problem. But are there specific aspects of uh, your proposal that people have argued with or brought up uh, problems that, that they see uh, that this doesn't address? I don't think it's necessarily problems. And I, I would love... I would, I would just love to have a board member or someone who's really, really close to the race and close to the system be able to dissect objectively what I've written. Because I've yet to have someone say, okay, Joe, your logic is completely faulty. There's there's interesting um, estimates and inferences that I've made with the data, for example. And you could say, well... You know, these are spurious um, correlations, and that may be. But there's there's been no one that said that this system, my proposal is wrong or not going to work. Rather, they'll, they'll always come back and say, well, what about, what if we just try to expand the field? What if we try, oh, we need to get rid of all the sponsor entries. And so they'll come up with all of these other solutions. And, and as I outlined in my post, they, they generally fall into a few different categories. They're either a linear solution to this geometric problem where mm-hmm. you're just throwing, you know, you're spinning into the wind, or they are major philosophical cultural changes like, oh, let's have two different races and the elites run different. And there's certain things that I know, knowing the board, that they'll never do and that they shouldn't do. And so people have all of these ideas, but they just, they're, I just don't think that they hit the mark right? in the way that, that, I'm not saying that my system is perfect, but I feel like mine is the only system that acknowledges not only the problem, but what would the potential first and second order effects of your proposal be? What would be the effect of, oh, let's let's expand the field to find the big effect that could possibly have? Some, some big second order things that, that people don't anticipate. And I feel like I put a lot of thought into anticipating those in, in this system, the stratified system, basic lottery is, is the best thing that, that I've heard of or have come up with. Now, you had presented this or at least a, a, something similar to this to the board back in 2017. Is that correct? I informally informally passed on this um, multiple emails and this basic essence to the board to several board members in the fall of 2017. There was some dialogue at that time, but really at that time, they didn't think that there was a problem. They didn't really accept that there were people that didn't truly want to run. They came back with data saying, well, our first, our one tick account finishing percentage is really high. So how can you say that people with one ticket don't want to run? And so they came back and then just not really seeing at least what I'm seeing in the greater population of ultra runners and probably the same thing that you're seeing. When you're farther away than, than Central California, you see a different cohort of runner and a different attitude than you do 
when you are, you know, as, as close to the race as they are. And so I never, I did ask to formally present this to the board and that was um, politely declined. I feel like at this point, I wouldn't mind um, sending a more formal proposal to them or a formal kind of outline of these ideas just for them to review. Because I do think that that there's some validity to, to my arguments and my proposal. I mean, to say to say that, you know, first time or one ticket applicants have a, a you know, X finishing rate and that proves that to me, I mean, this is going to be your only... You, you know, exactly. this is your only chance yeah. to run this race. And that's another thing that yeah. we didn't that, that we didn't get to touch on with your proposal is I'll, I I will hopefully get in one day, probably five years from now, and, and I'll be past my prime and I'll finish the race. I'm going to get to run this race once in my life. Uh, and that's basically anyone in the lottery now who is not, you know, going to get a ticket through you know, the golden ticket series or the ultra world trail tour or a sponsorship spot. Basically all of us are in that position where you have one shot ever to complete this. Um, and so I, I, I can't imagine how the finishing rate would be anything other than incredibly high. Um, and, and one nice thing about having a a multi-tiered system like yours is, you know, people will be will fall into different categories you will have if if this is a bucket list once in a lifetime kind of thing that you want to do and you get in and you do it that's great and if it's something that you really either had a connection to the race before and want to continue to come back or build a connection after that first time and and have a great experience like you did and want to get more involved and continue to run it then then that is suddenly an opportunity for you to have that that multi-year experience that was never that's never going to be there again. Uh, I mean, we're we're never going to see another uh, you know ten or twenty time finisher outside of you know sponsors exemptions and top ten you know repeat top ten that sort of thing. It's it's just never going to happen again. Yeah, Joe, do you have two minutes left to play Desert Island picks? I do. Yep. Joe, I'm sending you to a desert island for one year. And you are going to have to bring with you one book, one album, one food, and one beer. What do you bring into a desert island, Joe? Um, uh, the book is going to be Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. And a lot of even the terminology I use today was based on um, Tlaib is a, I should say, is a, he is a risk, I would say a, a, a risk analyst, I guess for lack of a better term. He's a former trader who goes into the mathematics of risk management and mm. talking just how to understand complex systems. And that really was just a mind-blowing kind of um, his text on how to understand complexity, hidden asymmetries, second-order effects, the things that we talked about. Of, of it, it, it was mind-blowing in terms of decision-making, to my approach to life, how I chose to open my own business of just looking at just a different way of looking at things. So it's such a, a cool read. And he's such a great writer um, and, a, and a role model for, for good, uh, a really cool way to relate really complex um, material in a user-friendly, if not humorous way. And so that's an outstanding book. That sounds um, awesome. My album... That is a tough one. Um, I think maybe U2's Octung Baby 
which I grew up on. You probably were in that same cohort when that when that came out. You two is one of my favorite bands. I'm a little older than you. I think I. How old were you when that came out? <laughs> well, it came out in '90, so I was probably in early middle, late middle school at that time. Yeah, I think I was a. I might have been a a junior in high school at that point. Um, favorite beer is now extinct, but we'll we'll conjure it up for this desert islands. Ninkasi Spring Rain. Oh, I love Ninkasi. It's one of it's a now defunct, unfortunately, um, uh, American Pale Ale that they used to put out in the spring was just amazing. And then food is a tough one, but I think I'll probably just go with PB and J. So I had to eat only one thing: peanut butter and jelly on really good bread. It uh, delivers everything you need, right? That's a classic. That's a classic. Joe, thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to link to not only your uh, website, Uhan Performance, if people are interested in coaching or online stride analysis. But I'm also obviously going to link to the series of blog posts that we were discussing today. I, I encourage anyone who is in, interested in Western states in general and the lottery in particular to read it. It's, a, it's a, a, I think, a very fair and even-handed and thoughtful analysis of the problem and the solution and, and goes really in-depth into a lot of the issues we're talking about here thank you so much for coming on. I, I do hope that, that, you know, that the board does take some of this into account. And, and like you said, as long as we're, you know, starting some dialogue and, and, you know, working towards positive change, hopefully that's something. Yeah, I agree. And I thank you for being um, a driver in, in that dialogue and, and hopefully positive growth. You bet. What's on the calendar for you coming up? Uh, we'll see. Blank slate. So. Okay. All right, good. Well, hopefully I will talk to you soon and see you on a starting line somewhere sometime soon. And to everyone else out there, thank you so much for listening. Until next time in the pain cave, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Broken down and beaten up, the years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded Like a good old pair of jeans Rusted like a proud old car That's drove a little too far And seen too much rain But long ago, as a child I look about the night sky in wild wonderment Then ride the bus and feel upset To think of all the years I'd have to go through that I was still young I was still